Welcome to Restitch America, a podcast about restoring civility, strengthening patriotism, and rebuilding unity in America. My name is Almohine Opari. As an immigrant for nearly two decades and a new American citizen, I created this show to help heal our national conversation, to rekindle our pride in our country, and to rebuild our sense of patriotism through optimism, civility, and willful positivity. Now sit, relax, and let's restitch America. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Restitch America. My name is Almohine Opari, and I'm very excited to be here with you today. Uh, this is episode number 21. And I can't believe it's been 20 episodes already. And for those of you who have stayed with us for this long, thank you so much for your support. Um, I know this is coming together little by little, but we're doing our best to bring you the the greatest content we can make. <laughs> so um, thank you for your support. And if you're listening to us for the first time and you have not subscribed or followed us on social media, please do so, because we need these followers. Um, and the reason is because they they help boost our videos and, and get it to a greater audience. So your support is greatly appreciated. If you have not shared it with your family members, please do so as well. So more and more people can join the conversation. So thank you. And as we said last week, uh, today is going to be a kind of a different episode. And so I have here with me my producer, Jenny Johnson. And the goal of today is to um, take some time to review some of the stuff we, the conversation we had with Marsha uh, the last couple of weeks and to provide kind of our side of the story. And and for the most part, it's going to be Jenny's <laughs> uh, side of the story or rebuttal <laughs> to... <laughs> to that conversation. And so um, I think one of the things that I am trying to do with this podcast is to create a space where people can feel comfortable to share what they truly believe. I want this to be, you know, I know this is a cliche, but I want it to be a <laughs> space for conversations to be had. I don't want anybody, no matter who they are, or where they come from, from feeling like they can't get a fair shake here. So this is the place where I want to find common ground as much as I can. And so what that means sometimes is I'm not going to challenge everything that someone says um, in the moment, because that's not the kind of sentiments I want to create with them. But that doesn't mean that if there is something that we disagree with, we're not going to go back and talk about it. And so that's um, one of the reasons why we're doing this episode this week. And so without further ado, we're going to jump right in. And Jenny, you're going to lead the conversation here because I know you have, you you listened to both of those episodes and took some notes and so on. So I'm going to take your lead and, and have you kind of walk us through where you found some, um, I guess, areas of disagreement or even potentially areas of agreement mm-hmm. and where you think maybe you know, things may not necessarily be as they were presented. Mm. So uh, let's let's move along and let's see how this goes. <laughs> <laughs> well, first off, um, I thought the discussion was fantastic. Like it was, it was very interesting to hear um, the other side and to just sit back and listen. I think that that's something that 
went really well is just listening to the other side, regardless of whether or not you agree. And I, I, I know the first reaction tends to be like a knee jerk reaction for most people. <laughs> and even me sitting through there, I was like, well, you know, I was thinking through the process in my head, but after, I think it was one of those episodes that took me a second time to go through it. You know, when you watch a movie the first time, you kind of get the layout of it, but then you're missing certain pieces of it. And so I have the wonderful opportunity to watch it multiple times. <laughs> and so I went back through, listened to it again, listened to it again. And my job is to search for the best parts of our episodes so that I can showcase them, right? And so listening through the episodes again, um, I found a lot more in common than the little knee-jerk reactions that I was having. And I think that's an important note to start off with is a lot of our guests, you know, some of our guests will agree with, some of our guests we won't. Some of our guests might be completely different from like what we look like or even our opinions, but being able to just sit and listen is a very hard thing to do. And I think if most people can do that, I think they'll find that they have more in common. And that's what I found with Marsha. I found I felt like I was listening to my aunt a little bit because my aunt is is liberal as well, but she's very um, passionate and she's very kind and she's very empathetic for people. And then she wants to do the right thing, even though our way of you know doing the right thing might be a little different or solving a problem might be different. Um, but so she reminded me a lot of my aunt. <laughs> so I'm um, very kind, very free spirited. And so I, I felt a connection with her on that. And then all overarching, I felt like I understood her at the root of everything. So all of the things that you guys were talking about, which we'll break down in a second. Um, she reminded me that I think at the root level of everything, we all want to solve problems and we all want to help people who are suffering. And I think the goal and everything is ultimately that to figure out how to solve these problems so that everybody can have an opportunity, everybody can get out of where they're at. And um, I think that's something that if you, as long as you focus on those root things, the rest of it kind of falls into place. You start looking for reasons why, and you start counseling together and then hopefully find a solution that works for everybody. So yeah. that were that was my overarching thought as I was listening to it. And I connected more with that than I did with the, maybe the little points of disagreement on like the like critical race theory and other things. So that's what I connected on her with the most. Thank so. you so much for sharing that because um, that's exactly how I felt. And mm. I promise you, it was very difficult for me to sit there and say, just listen, just listen. <laughs> Just it's listen. Hard. Tell me, and and that's the the same thing you're talking about the knee mm. reaction. And this is something that almost seems like <laughs> we've been trained mm. to behave this way, right? Mm. We watch it on TV every day. They bring people on, and the goal is to break them down. The goal is to destroy them. And sometimes when I read the news and I see the different headlines, and I know the goal of these headlines is to get people to click, mm-hmm. but many times you see a headline that says this person destroys or, you know, that person slams that person. And, and you go and read the article and I'm like, um, they just made a point that was different. <laughs> um, I don't see that as slamming somebody right? Yeah. or I don't see that as destroying somebody. And, mm. and so I think we're conditioned almost 
to have these knee-jerk reactions where we can't even endure listening to somebody without feeling some kind of visceral, you know, reaction to it. And and the, for me, I feel like it's getting to a point where it's becoming pathological, mm-hmm. which is very scary to have people who respond to things without thinking about it. And, and so one of the ways that I'm able to deal with these kinds of things is to ask myself, what is the goal? What is the goal of this conversation? And, and once I create that framework in my mind, and I'm able to look and say, okay, my goal is to understand. My goal is to hear people out. My goal is not to preach my gospel, right? My goal is to, to facilitate the conversation necessary to help people and help our audience understand the arguments that the other side are making. And when I did that, I found that, yes, we do agree on the fundamental principles of wanting to end the suffering that people are going through, and then also wanting to embrace people with love and acceptance. And that is the bottom line. Mm. That is what we're all looking for in, in life. And the question comes down to what ways are proven, what ways are proven to actually lead to those outcomes. Mm -hmm. And that's basically the entire argument. That's what we're fighting for is what is the path that will take us there. And what I love about the American system is the fact that the system is set up to allow us to try different paths. So we don't always have to go the same way, right? It's it's important for us to try different things because there might be something that I might have as a blind spot where I would never try. Someone else might not have that blind spot. And so California can be California if they want to be. And we can all look at California and say, is this working for them? And if they recognize that it's not working for them, they can make the adjustments necessary. And in in my state of Utah, you know, we can try different things, see what works for us. And what that does is it allows all of us to kind of experiment on all the different ways to achieve the goals that we we seek in the country. And if we do that, then eventually we will be able to find the right way to do things. I think at the end of the day, to kind of summarize this point, is the the challenge that we have is the fact that people are have become so emotionally connected to their ideology that even when something is not working, because there it has become part of their identity, it's almost impossible to shed that identity when things are not working out. Mm-hmm. And so when you are trying some homeless policy that is causing more homeless people, or you are trying some kind of newfangled, you know, drug um, program that is not getting people off of drugs, but actually, you know, getting them out on the streets, sometimes you get so emotionally connected to these issues and your approach to it, that even when the evidence suggests otherwise, you keep plowing forward. And that's the kind of attitude that we need to get out of politics. We need politicians who can feel shame, who can say, I was wrong, who can Mm -hmm. say, you know, we tried this, it didn't work, let's return to what works. Let's look for what actually works. Mm -hmm. That is what we need to to bring back into political discourse and conversation. I completely agree. Because the, the one thought that I had, at least at the beginning of the conversation about CRT is, 
I think people forget that a lot of what happens is these are all solutions that are based off of previous experience, right? Like, so like CRT, um, the way Marsha described it was, oh, they were trying to solve a problem. They, they saw a problem and that was their, their theory of how things happen in our institutions. So that's one way of thinking, but I think people forget that theories over time, like the more information is given, the more things change. And so like, cause this was a theory that was talked about in the sixties, seventies, right? Like CRT was one theory out of multiple, and it's also a legal theory, right? So it's, it's based in college discourse. It's not really a, like a cultural norm. <laughs> so it, it was talk about in academia. So it's, it was discussed and then brought into the eighties and then now is in current day trying to be translated. And something that you guys talked about, um, multiple times was just how things are, are very dumbed down and how they're just boiled down to like this very like minute detail, even though there's a lot more to it than that. I mean, the, the founders of CRT probably like most people start off with a good motive, right? They want to solve a problem. They want to get down to the nitty gritty. And so they have this theory of based off of certain factors that have been, they've been surrounded with that possibly could be why. And I don't necessarily think it's right of the right also to just say, well, it's not, it's not race at all. I mean, there, I mean, saying that is saying that there are people that are not racist when there could be factors of why, but I think it's a very small minority and compared to like the overreaching things that could actually be causes. And so I think it's important for people to remember that you know, not to have that knee jerk reaction, because I think that's such a, it's such a reaction that's just ingrained in our natural instinct. It's not not really a a thought out response. And something I had heard over the weekend that I thought was really great was um, before, you know, during us, when there's a stimulus and response, there's like a, a space in between. And I, I, I'm glad I heard that. Cause I mean, you, you're always told that you ha- have the ability to make conscious decisions. Like you can make the right choice or you can make a better choice than just that knee jerk instantaneous reaction. And when I heard that, you know, once the stimulus happens, there's a space and then there's a response. Um, the person had said in, in that space is when you have the opportunity to choose like how you will respond. And I think the important thing about telling yourself to just listen and like trying to practice that is you're thinking through how you're going to respond. And oftentimes silence or even a space of time makes people uncomfortable. <laughs> like they're just like, what do I do? Like no one's responding. This is a little awkward, but instead of, you know, thinking you have to respond instantaneously, you know, think through the process a little bit, think through how you're going to think. I think one of the best people I've seen do this is probably Jordan Peterson because he will sit and think and he'll sometimes just let the silence happen. (laughs) And um, for some people, they're probably like, is he going to respond? Like, is he going to do it? Because we're so, you know, used to that instantaneous response that we're just like waiting on pins and needles. And it almost makes it better because it makes people calm down a little bit. And and so when I see this happen and I see him just really thinking through how he wants to respond it makes me think about like how I wish that was more that happened more. <laughs> I like uh, I like the, that you bring that up because mm-hmm. it is definitely something that um, we have to relearn. I remember mm-hmm. when I served as a missionary, one of those things 
um, that you're talking about, one of the things we were trained on was what we call the power pause, mm-hmm. right? That allow that space for yeah. things to percolate a little bit. Um, and I think the challenge is that we have created this sense that if you don't have a curated, prepared answer for mm-hmm. every charge, for every accusation, for every point that somebody makes, then it yeah. means that you're you don't know what you're talking about. And so mm-hmm. that space is basically an accusatory space mm-hmm. where people can insert all their pejoratives against you. Mm-hmm. But I love that you brought up Jordan Peterson because as you said it, I noticed that it, it just I, I saw I've seen a lot of his videos and he does that very effectively where he just takes a pause and and relaxes, percolates a little bit. And sometimes mm-hmm. he comes back with, well, interesting thought. I've never thought about it that way, right? Mm-hmm. And it shows a little bit of vulnerability, um, which is great because we are all infall- you know, fallible people. And and the claim, you know, we try to create this persona that we are, you know, we cannot be pierced and we we know everything, mm-hmm. but we don't. And, and so when you see a group of people kind of bickering against each other, usually, um, usually it's not an intellectual conversation yeah. because it, it gets into emotions rather than focusing on learning from each other. And, and that's something we definitely need to bring back into into political conversations. Mm-hmm. When you think about it, like theories in general or political theory or legal theory or even scientific theory, all of those could be disproven over time. You know, so it, it in hindsight, like you can really think of it as why am I holding on to something that's so that could easily be undone? <laughs> because I, I was talking to our son yesterday because he was he got like on this scientific conversation. So we're mathematical conversation, right? Ten year old, right? <laughs> but he um we were t- I was discussing with him how everything we know is current is based on our current knowledge, right? And so it doesn't make sense to just hold so tightly onto something because new knowledge will always come about. And when you think about it, like we have all these things to describe, like we were talking about how a lot of time mathematics describes what we, or it, it, it's describing what we know already in different ways. And so really in the, like, it doesn't make sense to just hold on to something that's, that could easily be undone. And it, you know, over time too, like, I don't know, my, I always, I always think that it, it seems a little bit ridiculous to, to think that we know everything when really all these theories are trying to describe how we're trying to solve problems, right? Like how we're trying to find truth and the whole idea of just holding so tightly onto just this, this one idea so, so firmly that you're just completely not hearing everybody else around you when they could be offering something new or something that you've already heard, but maybe you haven't heard it in a way that actually makes sense. You know, it, it doesn't make sense to just hold so tightly onto something. And it, and I guess that, you know, is where the whole idea of narrow-mindedness and open-mindedness comes in is, you know, if you're, if you're holding onto something so tightly, then you're, you're allowing that something to be a burden. And you're, you're not, you're not allowing, you know, the conversation to happen. And that's what you want with dialogue. And that's what you want with genuine conversation is you want to feel like it's both sides talking, but even if it's just a one-sided conversation, you know, give your opportunity, give yourself the opportunity to just sit and think and learn 
and then know whether, whether or not you probably still feel a certain way, or maybe you don't feel a certain way. Maybe there is something that they aren't aware of that. You're just like, well, what about, you know, this, like I've, I've been in this area, I've done these types of things and it's been most prevalent in this. And I think you'll find that we, we sometimes want to find a one size fits all, you know, for the whole country. And I think at least in my experience, I've, I've had the opportunity to like observe different situations and learn about different situations. And I know like the situation here in our state is not the same as what would be in San Francisco or an inner city. Like there's just the people here and the culture here is completely different. And, but our problems are also different (laughs) as well. And it doesn't mean that we don't have the same problems, but we might have very varying level and degrees of Mm -hmm. problem. And so it, to, to treat, every single person, like it's a one size fits all is, is not the right thing. I mean, you wouldn't do that in a classroom and that's kind of where my experience is, is in a classroom. So, so, um, what I felt when I, when I think about CRT, Mm -hmm. um, I think primarily that it is basically attempting to do exactly what you talked about, which is Mm -hmm. attempt to be a one size fits all explanation Mm -hmm. for why there are disparities and and people get so um, it, like I said, emotionally attached to that idea mm-hmm. that the only reason why there are um, disparities between the races mm-hmm. is because our systems are built against a certain race. And so that that's the challenge with CRT. So mm-hmm. as a theory, definitely, I, I, I could see myself agreeing that there are issues, systemic issues that mm-hmm. affect people. But are they necessarily tied to race or mm-hmm. are they tied to kind of a state of being? Meaning, mm-hmm. for instance, if you live in the inner city, right, and, and the way that the inner city is run, is that systemic and is that systemically holding people back, yeah. right? That could be the, a part of the issue, which means that if you're a poor white person or a poor black person who lives in within those parameters, you will have the same outcomes, mm-hmm. right? It just so happens that more poor black people live in that situation. Yeah. And so when we take one thing like race and, and I know that it doesn't come from nowhere, right? We have a history mm-hmm. of racial injustice in this country. Yeah. And, and so it's very easy as a culprit to, to grab onto that idea of, Hey, this was our past. And because mm-hmm. this was our past, it is the root of everything that happens to us today and what will happen to yeah. us in the future. But maybe that is not necessarily the case. I'm not saying that it doesn't play some role in some mm-hmm. situations. However, I believe there's much more to do with government policy mm-hmm. that has nothing to do with race Yeah, to determine outcomes than actual racism, mm-hmm. right? That that is that is my personal experience. Mm-hmm. Is that a lot of the things that cause the disparities have to do with government policy, and if we can identify the government policy that is holding people back, then let's identify those policies and let's uproot those policies. Let's change. Mm-hmm. If we can't change the policies with the politicians that are currently there, let's vote them out. Let's bring yeah. fresh ideas in. Let's bring new people in. And we need to start educating our children to give them the foundation that is necessary, one, to understand the problems that are facing them. Mm-hmm. And then number two, 
to become the change that they want to see in their communities. But the problem with CRT and um, blaming race for everything is the fact that you can't really, it's intangible. You can't Mm -hmm. hold on to it. You can't say, this is the thing Mm -hmm. that is racist that I'm going to grab. And if I take this down, then suddenly the issues will be solved. There's nothing, it's like a, an invisible, um, an invisible enemy mm-hmm. that you can't really take down, which means that we're running around in circles without actually solving anything. We're riling up people's emotions mm-hmm. without solving anything because there's nothing tangible to hold on to. Who is the racist person that needs to lose their job? If you find one, then let's campaign to get that person you know, out of authority, right? Mm-hmm. If there is a racist law, then let's go find that racist law. But if you can't find any of those things and you still say race is the problem, then there are only two solutions. You either have to entirely destroy the system Mm -hmm. or you have to identify what you believe is the racial um, inequality that is going on. And unfortunately, most people can't find it. So it's this nebulous thing that is floating. It's all around us. And yet we can't see it. Mm-hmm. And people say they feel it. And yes, I know that there are individual situations where people are treated yeah. badly for various reasons. And I'm not dismissing any of that. Mm-hmm. But as a society in general, where is this thing? Where is this monster mm-hmm. that we can go and fight together? And unfortunately, yeah. it's very difficult to find. Yeah. And sometimes when I when I hear discussions like that it's it's either just solely due to race or and I know a lot of these people probably now especially in 2023 don't believe that it's solely due to race because there's so many factors in all of it I mean race might be one very small factor but it's not the whole one and when everyone's when everyone makes the argument that it is solely that I start to really think I was like but that's just a really really simple way of saying that like everyone is you know, I don't know, they're a horrible human being or something like that. But I, I just can't help but think it's just such a, not really lazy, but just, they're trying to find one thing to be that boogeyman that will just be the one thing overreaching that, that solves everything. And for me, it just, it really does feel like a political play when, when, especially when you guys were talking about how politics tends to oversimplify it. Like, I know that that's their intent. Like, they want to make one thing be the horrible scapegoat so that that's the one dragon that they have to fight, right? And then that will solve everything. But we all know that in reality, like, there are so many problems in the world that, you know, that is just not the boogeyman that they're making it out to be. And and so I liked that, you know, Marcia had break it, broken it down a little bit and said, this is just one way in, like, but there's multiple mm-hmm. different ways. And you guys touched on some of those ways, but... As I was listening, I think um, my biggest thing as I was listening and thinking about it was a lot of the things that were discussed, I think, are are very deep rooted in culture. And one of the one of the conversations that I wish had you know been talked about a little bit more was, you know, how everything is in regards to education, because I think that's where people, especially parents, are the most you know, (laughs) they're the most skeptical about everything going on because they don't want their kids to think that, 
because of race that they are either disadvantaged or have an advantage. And whenever we, they, we discuss situations like that, especially in regards to institutions and education, I really think of how much more to education there really is and how easily education can be undone and how easily, you know, just the area influences, you know, how school structures are run. And one thing that I didn't, I didn't know this when I first went into college, my background is in education. So I, I graduated um, from BYU with a bachelor's of science in education. And um, one of the things that I did not know at the time was how, how the system is funded. And a lot of people aren't really aware where the funds come from. And I think if they did, or if they were more aware of it, they would really start to know, you know, where the problems are that they can solve because education, I think you've learned this because you, you testified this of your mom's experience, but just a kid learning how to read drastically changes their outcome in life and it changes their opportunities in life or even having a certain level of academics, you know, just changes their complete outcome. And so when I, when I start looking into problems in culture or especially in communities, I start looking at, you know, how are the kids doing? What are the education rates and how are the schools doing in general? And this kind of made me sad. And this story was really coming out when um, you guys had your conversation and we posted the last couple of weeks, but the story about the five Walmarts that were leaving Chicago. And when my first thought, when I saw this was, of course, the natural, you know, side effect to that is going to be that the people who were doing good (laughs) are going to end up not having the needs that they have met. And then at the same time, um, you know, the kids that receive, you know, the tax money that goes into the system is not going to get to those schools because I, it's, it's very complicated, but not really a lot of the, a lot of the funding that states get uh, education in general is supposed to be run by the states. It's not run by the federal government. The federal government has very limited ability to have any say in education, which is why when common core happened, a lot of people were like, what the, you know, they pushed back a little bit. But the only thing that the federal government can really provide is funding. So they can provide grants. They can provide a way for you know, them to pay off a, a loan. They can fund it that way. But states are the ones that you are primarily are the source that, that money comes from. And not just that, but the local governments. And so what I find is that local governments are honestly what make the difference in whether a school is very well off or whether or not they are struggling. And here in Utah, we refer to the ones that are struggling as Title I schools. So we even, and even though I say they're struggling, they just don't have as many resources or the area that they're in might not be as well off. And so their, their resources in the school, like computers or iPads or things like that might be more limited. But usually the kids, regardless of that, still thrive. And there's just maybe a very small group that are just kind of barely struggling, but the the emphasis is always to make them get to grade level before they move up to the next grade. That's always the goal. Um, but when when and when you but when you take that into account that local governments and especially community governments and the taxes that are are pulled from those areas, you know, help add to the education because a certain percentage of those taxes goes towards education, whether for the district or for that local community. That's a huge, 
that's a huge change in outcome, right? So if you have, and I don't know if it's like this in other states, but if you have very well-off communities able to give more in tax money just because they earn more. So they live in a better house. So their taxes therefore are higher because the the area is worth more. When you have that versus, you know, a community that is much smaller or doesn't have as many businesses. So they they don't have as much taxable revenue that's coming into their city. You start to see that change, which is why, you know, we have that whole idea of school choice, right? If you're not in one of the, if you're in a community that's not very well off and your education system isn't that good, you have the opportunity to choose which school you go to. But um, I see situations like that and I see how it affects education. So my first thought when I saw, when I heard those five Walmarts leaving is it's not just going to affect where people can shop and whether or not they have food. And it's not going to just affect the good people there that are doing the right thing. But it's also going to affect the income of the students that are there. And I don't think people really understand that cause and effect enough to really understand. And for a for a billion dollar company to be like, you know what, guys, we're pulling out and we're pulling out our five businesses. That's that's huge. And it has a huge impact on those communities because if a huge company like that can't survive there and they're just saying, you know what, we're losing money then small businesses aren't going to thrive. They're not going to, they're not going to set up camp because they don't have the same resources that, a you know, a huge corporation like Walmart has. Walmart has tons of resources. They can afford a little bit of losses, but for them to say, you know what, we're pulling out, that's, that's a scary thing. And, I know. and, and it should be alarming to a lot of people. And right now I think that they're just seeing, you know, oh, it's food leaving, but it's like, no, it's food. And it's, it's education. It's, it's jobs it's for jobs. These kids in the summer. It yeah. is, you know, jobs for adults. Mm-hmm. It is, you know, seniors getting their medication. Yeah. It is, you know, nutrition, you know, food, fresh mm-hmm. food, vegetables, yeah. and, and things like that. And now, as I was listening to you, mm-hmm. one thing that kept ringing my mind is this idea of governance. Yeah. Governance is the challenge. Mm-hmm. Governance is a challenge. And yes, there are some structural things that need to be changed. So if you live in a town that does not have a big tax base because there's there are not a lot of businesses, mm-hmm. or you know, many of the homes are subsidized or funded by the government, such that you don't have the appropriate level of property taxation in order to support education, mm-hmm. then you have to be innovative, right? You have to say, okay, that's the paradigm that we use mm-hmm. property taxes to fund education. But if we can't do that, maybe we appeal to the state and, or, uh, you know, come up with a different solution, right? Mm-hmm. There is this idea in politics that things have to stay the same way, yeah. right? This is how it's been done for decades. And instead of changing the process or in, instead of changing their policies, they try to change their standards, mm-hmm. right? So instead of saying, well, the kids are not passing, none of our kids are at grade level, you know what we should do? Let's figure out the root cause. Let's figure out why we don't have the funding. Let's mm-hmm. come up with new forms of funding. No, you know what we should do? You know what <coughs> businesses or these cities do? Mm-hmm. Let's change the grading standard. <laughs> Let's make C a passing grade so that all these kids can be shuffled through the system mm-hmm. without actually changing anything. We change things on paper. 
yeah. without actually changing things in people's lives. And that is that is the part of government that frustrates mm-hmm. me. So if I say I want to be like, I don't want to be a politician, seriously, mm-hmm. because I feel like politicians are ineffective. <laughs> However, one of the only reasons I would ever choose to go into politics is because I hope that I can bring some a different way of looking at things, mm-hmm. right? I, I hope that I can be the person in the room that says, why are we doing it this way? Like yeah. it is not working, right? When you have a, a city, I, I believe it's Baltimore, where none, mm-hmm. zero of their kids in the entire city, oh, I know. zero of their kids are reading at um, a grade level or doing math at grade level. And you're mm-hmm. like, that is a systemic problem. Yeah, now, that is a systemic problem that is not due to race because mm-hmm. that system is run mostly by people of African-American descent. And mm-hmm. so if it is not a race problem and we blame race for it, mm-hmm. then we are not solving the problem. It's like going to a doctor and the doctor has his diagnosis already prescribed before he actually examines you. You come in and he looks at you and is like, you know, you have a cold. They're like, no, doctor, I don't have a cold. My my foot hurts. And it's like, no, no, this is the prescribed problem. And that problem has been determined prior to your examination. And I don't, even if I examine you, mm-hmm. I am required by law to say it's a cold. That is basically mm-hmm. how our system, our government, a local government system is run, where people can't actually diagnose problems because they have predetermined causes. Yeah. <laughs> Like race is the cause or redlining from 60, uh, the 60s, the 50s and the 60s, or, you know, all these kind of pre- predetermined causes mm-hmm. that are ascribed to why things are going a certain way. Mm-hmm. And then nobody challenges that. And so that is that, that is the part of, of politics and, and governance that really, really frustrates me because nobody is out there. To solve problems. Nobody is out there. And, and this even happens at the national level as well. Mm-hmm. Nobody's really solving problems. They go, they grandstand, they talk a lot, and nothing gets done. Mm-hmm. Nobody actually solves problems. And I remember way back in the day when um, Obamacare was being instituted, if you remember, they, they had quite a bit of issue setting up a website for people to sign up for Obamacare. Mm-hmm. And the government, the federal government spent $600 million, $600 million to create a website that did not work on day mm-hmm. one. And I just, I was, you know, a young, you know, tech um, <laughs> entrepreneur at the time. And I'm like, how is this possible? $600 million. Like how many companies have been created Mm-hmm. With their initial fundraising being, you know, 250K, mm-hmm. I started my company with an initial, you know, investment of $100,000. Mm-hmm. And I got a website and an app working. And most of it was done by me. Mm-hmm. And so when you hear of someone building a platform for $600 million mm-hmm. and it doesn't work, you know, that is basically the mismanagement of funds mismanagement of govern government and that is that is the reason why we're in the place where we are that is the systemic issue is yeah. systemic you know um systemic misgovernance yeah i don't know if that's a word like but that is basically what's happening <laughs> is the governance is bad 
And that's mm-hmm. a systemic problem. We need to change the governance, change the mm-hmm. people in government, bring new ideas. Yeah. Make it easier to institute and implement new ideas mm-hmm. so that we can we can get out of this um kind of cycle, vicious cycle of mm-hmm. repeating the same thing over and over again with different generations expecting a different result. Yeah. And something that you reminded me of as you were talking was uh so I'm going back to education a little bit. Um, it kind of reminded me of the fact that, you know, charter schools are probably one of the biggest enemies of the public school, right? And it's not, it, well, not necessarily the public school, they're the biggest enemies of the unions. <laughs> because for the sole fact that they're they're outside of the governing body. So like charter schools, how they're run is they, like they're described, they make contracts with the state government to basically be an operation. And with the with the caveat that they have to perform. So they receive state funding, but they don't receive any of the local funding. So they're already naturally out the gate receiving less resources than public schools. But they but what's different about charters is they have the incentive to perform because if they do not perform at the same level of a, as a public school or above, then they have that funding removed. They're not in the same situation where they can just let kids fail. <laughs> And then still have funding the next year. They have to perform and perform at a high level. And so along with that, too, is because they're not, they have to still teach to a core. They still have to teach according to the standards set out by the state and and everything that's supposed to be there at grade level. But they can change the way that they teach. They can teach in different methods or multiple methods. And so, um, and Thomas Sowell, like he wrote a very good book on this called Charter Schools and Their Enemies. And I've been, I bought it because I'm, I've been reading through it because I'm like, well, what is, what is the real deal here? And he was a strong proponent for charter schools in the areas that are especially not growing as vast because they were able to operate on less funding, but still provide a high level of education for kids. And charter schools are not funded on tuition. Like I said, they're funded by the state. Um, but they they completely rely on parent involvement and also other fundraising to keep running. And most of the charter schools, at least here in Utah, you know, there there have been charter schools for the past 20 years. The the first one being John Hancock that's out here. And they really wanted to change the the, the way academics is run. And that's why, you know, charter schools either get like a really bad rap from people who don't like them or they get or they they're seen as a hindrance because they're they're giving another idea of how not just education should be run, but they're saying we can operate on this amount of money. And if we have parent involvement, we're able to still succeed and not just succeed, but we're able to offer the same programs. We're still able to bring this in. And so when I see situations like that, where schools are still able to operate on not as much funding, it does make me think, you know, well, what systemically is going wrong in the, the schools in the inner cities, which we know are receiving money, they're receiving funding because the state divvies it out. They have, they have resources, not just that from their local and state government. So why are kids still performing at a low level? And that could be multiple reasons. It could either be the governance that's happening in the schools or the way the city is operating or maybe the way funds are allocated. But I think in some of these places, I've really started to wonder like how motivated are these children to really, you know, think that they can get out of the situation or maybe they're looking at their environment and saying academics is not going to get me there. 
you know, being, being on social media is what's going to get me there or, or being that one hit wonder is what's going to get me there. And it's so disheartening. You know, an athlete is what is going to get me out. Yeah. Being an athlete. And those aren't necessarily bad things to aspire to, but I think we both know, and I think a lot of people know this as well, is just how education really does change their outcome. And for them to just be completely unmotivated or disinterested and, or for teachers to be working so hard to get these kids to try to learn, but they're just not seeing the benefit of where it's going to take them is really disheartening because it's, it's setting back a whole generation of kids. And when you think about it, and I liked that Marcia said, this is you, the youth and children really are our future generation. They really are the future of our country. And I think the strongest motivation for us should be wanting our future generations to succeed. And so when I see, you know, kids getting way below, like they're not even scoring 20%, <laughs> like they're scoring way below. I know it's not because they're dumb. They're not stupid kids. They're very smart, intelligent kids that have the ability to go beyond where they're at. But, but then whether it's motivation that's lacking, whether it's their schools that are lacking, whether it's their family environment or their culture that's lacking, something is not motivating them to see the opportunity that's before them. And when it's, it, and it, so it's like preaching to the choir, right? Like, yeah. And, I, I, and this is why I have such a, an aversion against the RT. This is why I have not look for those opportunities. Exactly. This is why I have such, um, I why I don't like CRT. And the reason for that is, is that at least the way it's been distilled down mm-hmm. into um, mm-hmm. local elementary and yeah. middle schools is this idea that, hey, there's this insurmountable mountain that mm-hmm. is going to prevent you, irrespective of your actions, yeah. from succeeding, right? And these children, I, I've, I've said this so many times, that the worst thing you can do for a person is to hide from them their potential. And I feel like CRT hides people's potential from them because it gives them a boogeyman that absolves them of an understanding of their potential, that absolves them of you know the willingness to see that they can rise above the challenges that are ahead of them. Mm-hmm. And... And so once you create this boogeyman and say, look, it's not your fault, it's not your fault, it's because of this system. And and funny thing, even if you believe that it is the system that is holding them back, and is this system um, of racial injustice that is holding them back, are you going to remove that system for that child today? And, And so you basically create hopelessness in these children where they have a system supposedly that is hanging over their heads, they have no control of that system. How are they going to wake up every day and be motivated when they are told that it's not going to work out for you? When they're told that the best you can hope for is to be a manager at McDonald's. And that's like the, the where you can, you know, that's the limit of your ambition, right? Once those those seeds are planted into the hearts of these children, it becomes impossible impossible to to overcome them i had a friend um who passed away a few years ago um but he was a really brilliant guy and he grew up in the south side of chicago i really admire him and one day we're talking and i just wanted to understand you know how it was like growing up in in those areas 
you know, how he ended up where he ended up. Um, and he was one of the top performing guys at my company at the time. And he told me his story and it, it really opened my mind. And what he said was he grew up in the South side of Chicago. His parents were very educated, um, very, very educated, highly educated. But after the, their education, they moved back into the inner city and that's where he grew up. So he had all the support that he would need. And yet his environment outside of his home was not giving him that vision, right? Mm-hmm. His vision for what he, you know, people could do really was, hey, you, 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 you go to school, you do what you can, mm-hmm. and then you you go be like the, the limit of his vision was manager at McDonald's type, yeah. right? That's kind of where he, his mind was. Mm-hmm. He had the opportunity because he was a good athlete to go to, I believe it was um, Oklahoma, uh, to to do track and field, mm-hmm. and he was he was very excited. He got the scholarship. He was able to do that, and then while he was there, he said um, there was a recruiter from Goldman Sachs mm-hmm. that wanted to recruit some of the athletes, and because he was one of those athletes, they they selected him as a liaison mm-hmm. to connect you know, some of the athletes to Goldman Sachs. And through that opportunity, he actually got an internship mm-hmm. at Goldman Sachs. And then eventually he went to New York to to do that internship. And he said he didn't own a suit, <laughs> didn't own a suit. And they were like, get a suit. You're going to come to work every day and you're going to come here. You have to be here 8 a.m. sharp and you're not leaving until, you know, and for interns, it's like you're not leaving until like 7 p.m., Right. Yeah. And and he said, for the first time in my life, mm-hmm. I had a structure. I had a structure, mm-hmm. a work structure that I'd, I had never experienced before. Mm-hmm. And he's like, when I got my first paycheck, I'm like, so all I have to do is just show up here, do this work for a few hours and then go home and they will send me money. Like that whole concept was like almost a revelation to him. I'm not saying mm-hmm. he didn't, I mean, he was a smart kid. <laughs> I'm not saying he didn't understand just the basic way of the, how the world works. But he said it was an eye-opener for him because that mm-hmm. barrier had been planted in his head that, you know, these things don't happen to people like me, right? And so he finally started seeing those shackles removed. And he was excited. He 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 said, I'm, I'm just going to lean in and he did that. He had a great internship. And when he was done, he was offered a position. And he was thinking, you know what? In the position, funny thing, the position was in Utah. <laughs> <laughs> so Goldman Sachs has a, a, a pretty big operation here in Utah. And mm-hmm. so he was thinking, why in the world would I go to Utah? Like, why? I'm a black kid from the south side of Chicago. But he said, well... I'm just going to go to Utah for a year and then I'm going to look to transfer because Goldman Sachs, I believe, has another operation in Houston. So Mm -hmm. it's like, I'm just going to be in Utah for a year, you know, so I can kind of get my feet under me and then Mm -hmm. I'm going to transfer over to Houston. That was his plan. Mm -hmm. And then he moved to Utah and started working here. And he's like, I'm walking down the street. I don't have to care whether I'm wearing a blue or whether I'm wearing red. I don't have to look behind me. I don't have to have a sixth sense trying to, you know, ascertain what is happening around the corner. 
Yeah. So run into something unexpectedly. Everything changed for him. Yeah. And he's like, he bought his first house. Like he, he had his, you know, he was just a different person. Mm-hmm. And he said he would call his friends back in Chicago and they would be like, where are you at? And he's like, hey, I'm in Utah. And they would diss him. What the heck are you doing in Utah? Like, you know, and he's like, just come and see, like, come, I'll pay for your ticket. Come and see, come and see how I'm living here. And he couldn't get people to get out of that mindset. They wouldn't Mm -hmm. come and see. They would not come and see because they had, they were so stuck in that mindset of we can't get out Mm -hmm. that they actually took it as a pride that they couldn't get out basically. Right, mm-hmm. that they were stuck in that circumstance, and he couldn't get them to come visit him in Utah, yeah. right? And and he, as he would share this with us, he was just like, he's like, I came here and my life is completely different. He bought two homes here in Utah. Unfortunately, he had a brain tumor and ended mm-hmm. up passing away, but he was an inspiration to me. But also, he helped me truly understand kind of the challenges that people are talking about. Mm-hmm. When people say, you know, the inner city is a certain way, I think at the end of the day, that is why I I, I see things in topics like CRT and I feel like they're a simplification mm-hmm. that is detrimental to the conversation of progress. And the yeah. reason why it's detrimental is because it takes your attention away from the things that actually work and allows you to focus on a boogeyman that you cannot comprehend, that you mm-hmm. cannot really do anything about. And so this guy was able to change his life by one, being given an opportunity mm-hmm. to do something he hadn't done before. And then he having the wherewithal to embrace that opportunity. And then through that opportunity, basically develop a completely different outlook on life and an understanding of his potential that he may not have had before. Mm-hmm. And then from that point, everything fell into place because now he had connected to the system of how things work and how hard work translates into economic prosperity. Mm-hmm. And once he held on to that, his entire life changed. Mm-hmm. You know, his entire life changed. And it doesn't mean that one of the things he did while he was here in Utah was fight for not only do his work at my company, but also fight for, you know, discrimination issues and diversity issues. And so on. And all those were no very noble causes because just because he had succeeded doesn't mean that, you know, there's no discrimination in the system. And he yeah. helped kind of change that culture a little bit, but his life was different. Mm-hmm. His life was different. And the question is, how can we take experiences like that and make it the norm mm-hmm. in the inner city? How do we grow kids and train them to actually see their potential mm-hmm. far beyond the limitations of their um, their circumstances at birth? How do we begin to teach culture and transform the destructive cultural um, tenets of certain cultures that are holding people back? Mm-hmm. How do we begin to dismantle those things mm-hmm. so that people, children are able to wake up and look up in the in, in the in the sky and say, I know I can be the pilot in mm-hmm. that plane that is going over my head. Right. That is what we need to do. And telling people, 
through CRT boiled down to systemic racism is everywhere around the corner. Mm -hmm. That is taking from them something precious. Mm -hmm. And that is what we are fighting against. For those of us who are against CRT, that is what we're fighting against. We believe every child should have, if even if they're born into abject poverty, mm -hmm. be giving a fair opportunity to understand what their potential is, especially in a place like America. And what we have to do is to reveal to these kids their potential. And CRT doesn't do that. It actually mm -hmm. does the opposite. And so that's why I fight CRT. Mm -hmm. Well, and um, while you're talking, I was thinking about this. I had this thought yesterday as I was thinking about all of the material that we would be talking to, about this morning. I was thinking about like why children and and as you know, I'm like I'm a mother. You know, we're both parents, and we both have children, and we and I've had the opportunity to work with lots of children. I think it's in my nature <laughs> to really you know love children. I think I. I knew I wanted to become a mother from a young age because I just had this great love for children. And I thought, well, why, why is it that we, especially in this culture, feel the need to make our children adults so quickly? Because when you think of CRT and all of the, the theories and things that they will be learning, they, they have the opportunity to learn those as adults, right? They'll be able to understand the nuances better. Their brains are better structured and wired for it. They've already experienced like other things. They've had the academic knowledge to be able to get them to that point. So why is it so important to teach them, um, especially something like that at such a young age? And again, you know, every school might not be doing it, but the discussion of race, especially like when I think of children and, you know, part of, you know, going into education, you learn a lot about like um, child development, right. And human development in general, and the one thing that I know of children, especially at young ages, is that their their view of the world is very different from our adult view. <laughs> like, oftentimes when we're trained as teachers, we're trained to like you know make our our language a little bit easier to understand, and even then the kids still might not understand what we're saying because they just see and their their vocal ability, everything is so different. And when I was thinking about just what children are like. I just think that they just have that innocent perspective, right? Like they, they see the world in a completely good light. They see the goodness in people. And usually, you know, our job is to help manage a little bit and, you know, teach them how to share, <laughs> you know, or teach them how to learn socially what certain principles they have to learn to get along with people. But when I, when I've watched my kids playing with other children they don't look for all of the societal things that we look for. They don't look for all the cultural things that we try to teach them. They just innately want to play. They just want to play with the closest kid that's next to them, or they want to just get along or make friends or, or be involved, or they, they learn that, you know, if their friend's not feeling good, they feel bad. And I, I was thinking about this experience not too long ago, but um, after my second child, I, I had, I did not feel like myself. I was in a gutter. I physically was not in the best shape of my life. I mentally was not in a good place. And there were multiple times where I was crying. And my my son, who was probably about 18 months, two years old at the time, he was very well spoken as a child. It was very confusing sometimes because I was like, How are you talking so well? You're talking like an adult and you're only like this young. But there was a time where I just was sitting there crying. And he came up to me and he, he was like, Mom, why are you crying? And I was like, well, I just don't feel like myself. I just don't feel very pretty today. And he came over and gave me a hug 
and was like, but I think you're pretty. And my brain just kind of went like, of course I started crying more because you know, I'm like an emotional mom. I just started bawling even harder. But this realization just kind of kicked in my head of why do I feel the need to perform for everybody else? Right. Why do I feel the need to have all of this for everybody else? And this little child can, you know, who's very young, like he has no perception of beauty, but he's like, but mom, you're beautiful to me. And I think that changed like my whole perception, not just of myself, but you know, what I want to become for my children. Because I I think children have this very, very, they see the best in everybody, even when you don't see the best in yourself. And it and sometimes it reminds me of, you know, especially in the scriptures, how we're told to liken ourselves to children. And I don't necessarily make think that's to act like children, right? You know, at our worst. I think it's to hold on to that, that positive perspective that there is good in every single person, despite all of the perceptions we're given, because I mean, at least we're taught to, you know, see the best and love everybody from that perspective. And I think that's why I value the youth's perspective, just like Marsha does. And I, especially the younger generation, because there's things that we forget as adults, we for, we forget to hold on to that innocence because we've seen, you know, what the world is like, we've seen how evil it can be. And I think sometimes it really does you know, pull down our optimism of whether or not we can solve problems or whether or not we can actually, you know, come to the table with every single person and agree on things. And I think we let, you know, the divisive rhetoric, especially coming from politics or just people who just are miserable in general, (laughs) it tends to seep into our hearts very easily. And it tends to interfere with our perception of how we should actually be looking at people. And I think that's why I loved the conversation with Marcia so much because I I just liked seeing two people who are very different be able to just agree on, you know, certain aspects of, you know, there are a lot of things we have to fix. There are a lot of people suffering that we have to help. And I think the the best the biggest eye opener during that conversation for me was just her saying don't just serve, you know, engage with people cuz I I think we're, you know, especially our church that we're in, we're we're very service oriented. Like we we're we're taught to, you know, serve our neighbor, be involved in their lives. But how many times have I like gone to serve people and I've only, you know, helped their their physical need or their temporal need, but I haven't really talked to them or looked into like what they need spiritually or what they need emotionally. Like how many times have I actively engaged with other people to learn more about them other than just providing a temporary service? And so, and that's something that everybody can learn across the board. Like it doesn't have to be just a, you know, one person on one side thing. Am I really actually looking at people, you know, to get to know them? Or am I just looking at the, you know, as a, you know, this makes me feel good. (laughs) And so, and I think, I think that really does go back to, you know, what is our true intent? What is our goal? Is our goal really to understand people? Is it really to dive down deep into the root of things? Or is it just to see the surface stuff and then just pick and, you know, pick a fight that we're willing to do and then just solve the, get, find the easiest thing that we think is a solution. But I think we, at least I've learned from, you know, politics and, you know, the current rhetoric that it seems like they try to find the easier route <laughs> because they know that the more difficult path is doing what we are trying to do. Exactly. It's, it's actually going down into the root. It's finding the cause because we know that 
you know, people deep down that might be actually suffering from certain things. And we want to provide those opportunities. We want them to see their potential, but sometimes, you know, it's, it's not on the surface level. Sometimes it's very deep inside their hearts. It's deep inside their minds. And we have to be willing to play the long game and not Mm -hmm. just play the short game and try to find the simplest solution. We have to look for the long-term solution for a lot of people. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And I know this conversation could could go on forever. (laughs) I know. (laughs) um, But we need to take a break here so we can ponder some of the discussions we've had today. Mm -hmm. And once again, my goal, as, as we've said all the time, is to create a space where we can all start thinking more critically about the things that are happening in our country and and come up with solutions that are not surface level solutions, solutions that really actually transform people's lives and not just their, their own lives, but transform generations. Mm-hmm. And that should be the goal of anybody who goes into public service. And unfortunately, I don't believe that is always the goal. Um, and that is what I want to bring into the world. This is my contribution to the world. This is what I want to be able to bring. If I have a legacy to give, my legacy would be to leave this world with a knowledge that our potential needs to be nurtured, that you know our children need to be brought up in a way that they can each and every one of them find what their purpose is on this earth and actually go and fulfill that purpose. And I want to create resources and programs and, and systems that enable them to see that potential and then to do everything in their power to go and achieve the things that they are destined to achieve. The worst thing that we can do to people is to hide their potential from them. And I'd like to wrap up this conversation by thanking um, Jenny for coming on and and showing her face. (laughs) She's usually (laughs) behind the scenes and, um, you know, helping us kind of wade through some of this. And in the end, I think the end, the the end um all be all around all this conversation is that we do have a lot in common right we do have a lot in common and if we can unite with people like marsha and we can find like-minded people who are not looking to fight us all the time and then we actually bring our heads together maybe we can start something and we can create something that actually changes lives mm-hmm. so um a little bit of a note before i wrap this up I am going to be out of the country for a couple of weeks. And so we're going to take a break after next week's episode because I leave um, next Friday. And so we're going to take a a couple of weeks break, but I'm not going to leave you. um, I will come back with something great for you. So I'll be in Ghana for two weeks and I will, while I'm there, I'm going to be doing some filming and I'm not going to reveal exactly what I'm doing yet, but I will I will bring you something that I think you would appreciate um, in our 22nd episode. So look for it. Actually, not tw- yeah, 22nd episode, but it's it's going to be after a two week break. So thank you all for listening to this episode of Restitch America. Um, we love your support, and we encourage you to go like, follow, share, comment, do whatever you can to help us get the word out. So once again, thank you so much for joining us and we will see you next week. Bye.